Hi everyone, Sarah Schaefer here. Thanks for checking out Art History Happy Hour. The episode that follows is back from when our podcast was called State of the Arts, and you can now find our episode blog and other resources, including a link to our Patreon page at arthistoryhappyhour.com. Welcome to State of the Arts, the podcast that explores how art and its history shape our world today. My name is Sarah Schaefer. And I'm Tina Rivers-Ryan. As those of you who are veteran listeners are probably aware, we often like to do episodes that not only relate to current news stories, but also those that may be sort of thematically linked to certain times of the year we're in, holidays, etc., Today's episode, uh, which focuses on the seascapes of the British painter Joseph Mallard William Turner, actually combines both the time of the year and current events in, in an interesting way, which is why we decided to focus on them for today's episode. Turner has been the subject of a lot of interest, a lot of news in the past couple of years, particularly with the release of the biopic Mr. Turner and the exhibition JMW Turner Painting Set Free, which actually uh, just opened at the de Young Museum in San Francisco. And after, before that, it was on view at the Getty Museum in Los Angeles and at the Tate Britain in London. It also gives us an opportunity to talk about some of our favorite images of the sea, which is an appropriate summertime topic, and although I've mentioned before I'm terrified of the sea, uh, Turner's sea images are are really evocative and really interesting subjects to talk about. And I love the sea so much, I make up for it for both of us. Right. I, I have multiple nautical theme tattoos. Yes. <laughs> I mean, my last name, you know, maiden name was Rivers. Right. Not without reason. We are sort of a, a water-born family. Right. My grandfather has a saying, a river's girl never gets the sand out of her toes, and it's true. Nice. Stuff never comes out. Which is part of the reason I don't like going to the beach. <laughs> it's exfoliator, Sarah, uh, and it's free. But it's on your feet. Uh, it gets in your shoes. Free pedicure. Anyway, well, my name means shepherd, so I'm very landbound. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. Turner explored sea imagery throughout his long and varied career. And today we're going to be looking closely at three images which speak to the different social, historical, and aesthetic conditions of the sea in Turner's body of work. A little bit of background about Turner. He was born in 1775 to pretty modest conditions. Uh, His father was a barber and a wig maker. He began drawing at an early age and was really encouraged by his father. And his father would later become essentially his studio assistant. He stretched canvases for Turner and mixed paints. And this was something that had to be done at the time. It was in the 19th century that we start to have sort of the industrialization of of many paint materials, pre-stretched canvases, pre-made paints, so you don't have to mix the pigments with the oils and all of that. So that would, for for a well-known painter, someone like Turner, that would be done by a studio assistant, and, and his father performed those tasks for, uh, for uh, part of his career. Turner became a member of the Royal Academy of Art at the age of 15 and showed an aptitude for topographical and architectural drawing. And the Royal Academy was one of 
a number of European institutions, these sort of state-sponsored institutions. I believe we've talked about it in France, at least. Um, the, the, the French Academy was responsible for the exhibition, the, the, the Salon, which we've definitely talked about. Um, I think we talked about it in the Impressionism episode. Um, the, the Royal Academy in London was basically the British uh, counterpart to, to the French Academy. So he became a member at a very young age, 15. Um, and the first oil painting he exhibited, even though he showed that early aptitude for topographical and architectural drawing, the first oil painting actually exhibited at the Royal Academy was one called Fisherman at Sea. He exhibited this uh, in 1796. He was, I believe, 20 or 21 at that point. In this work, he's already showing a penchant for visualizing the drama of lighting and atmospheric effects, particularly on the surface of the sea. So it's a nocturnal scene. The moon illuminates the central group, which is a, a small fishing boat. And there's another one to the right, but it's, it is more shrouded in, jar- in darkness. And the bright light of the moon really draws your attention to the surface of the sea, both in its really heavy, relatively heavy motion in the foreground, as well as the more calm sea in the background. So that was his first sort of major sea painting. But the first work I want to discuss in depth is one that's called St. Michael's Mount. And it's not actually a painting. It's a print that was produced as as part of a series called Picturesque Views of the Southern Coast of England. And that was produced between 1814 and 1826. Now, before I get into Turner's image and and the larger series of which it's a part, we need to sort of take a step back and unpack the term picturesque a little bit. So it's picturesque views. In the 18th and 19th centuries, the term picturesque was really highly codified. It meant something very, very specific. Now when you use the term picturesque, it's it's sort of just something that's pleasing. Or uh, something that looks like a picture. Or like something that art. looks like a picture. Mm-hmm. And this is coming large. The, the, the way that the picturesque became codified in the 18th and 19th century is coming largely from the work of an author named William Gilpin, who in his 1768 essay on Prince described the picturesque as, quote, that kind of beauty which is agreeable in a picture. So sort of a very general, um, very general definition of what picturesque means. Later, uh, in 1792, he published his essay on picturesque beauty. And this really thoroughly defined the particularities of what makes an image and particularly landscapes, although he does talk about portraiture and, uh, and other genres, but what makes them picturesque. For Gilpin, the picturesque was especially accessible primarily in nature. Um, There's this great quote from that essay. It's a really enjoyable essay to read. Um, He says, the picturesque eye abhors art and delights solely in nature. So that sort of artificial arrangement of objects and, and visualization of a scene that is associated with art, he contrast that he contrasts the picturesque in saying that it the picturesque is more uh, grounded just in nature in the natural uh, relationships of of the man-made and the natural uh, landscape um, although he also as we'll see has very particular ideas for 
what makes a picturesque scene. The, the type of nature that for Gilpin is particularly picturesque is that which evokes the idea of roughness. And roughness or rough is a term that is used frequently throughout this essay. He gives the example of, of Palladian architecture, which is very similar to, to classical architecture and it emerged in the 17th century. And Palladian architecture in its smoothness, its order, its proportion, and its sym- symmetry, that in and of itself is pleasing. Um, but when put into a picture, this is what he says, the architecture itself is very could be considered pleasing and picturesque, but once you insert it into an image, it's not so. And he says that in order to give it picturesque beauty, you must take a mallet and, quote, we must beat down one half of it, deface the other, and throw the mutilated members around in heaps. In short, from a smooth building, we must turn it into a rough ruin. No painter who had the choice of two objects would hesitate which to choose, end quote. So he's saying, obviously, if you see a ruin versus a perfect classical building, you're going to pick the ruin as the more picturesque. Gilpin's work was very, very influential. Picturesque landscapes really abound in 19th century British art. The most common elements of which you'll see are various sort of asymmetrical landscapes, often punctuated by medieval ruins. And the ruin is important because it's visualizing the confluence of of nature and mankind nature sort of overtaking the building that was built by humanity. Um, And it's also evidence of the degradation of time. It gives this sort of temporal element to it. A vast tourism industry arose from the 18th century around this idea of the picturesque. So if you've read Pride and Prejudice, or if you've seen any of the... um, TV or film adaptations of it. You might remember when uh, Elizabeth Bennett goes with her aunt and uncle to the Lakes District, and that's sort of a picturesque tour that they're doing, is, is going and look at what many believe to be the most picturesque spots in, in this part of England. It's a very popular activity among middle-class and upper-class families. Because of the popularity of the picturesque, there's also a huge market for prints and illustrated books of these sites, which people can use as guides when they go to visit picturesque sites or as sort of uh, memorials of these sites. Around 1814, Turner was contracted by the publisher William Bernard Cook to produce watercolors of various picturesque sites that would be turned into prints, which could be purchased through subscription. And this is what would become uh, the picturesque views of the southern coast of England. One of the most evocative examples from this series is St. Michael's Mount, which is a tidal island off the coast of Cornwall, which is in southwest England. This is a site that had and and still continues to draw tourists and artists and writers. As Turner's image demonstrates, it incorporates all the necessary elements of the picturesque. It's got this pleasing asymmetry. So it's basically an island not far off the shore. It's this, this sort of tall outcropping in the middle of the ocean. Uh, It's got pleasing asymmetry, this variegated rock formation. On top of the mount are are the remains of a medieval monastery. So this is, again, a reminder of the passage of time. 
And the Turner also puts figures in the foreground who are working against the forces of nature. They're working against the sea, which also gives a sense of scale to the overall scene. The accompanying description to this image in the book Picturesque Views says, This curious rock, which rises in a bold pyramidical form from the surrounding waves, when considered in all its circumstances of traditional story, singular situation, and picturesque effect, offers a most interesting natural object on the coast of Cornwall. It is calculated to attract the attention of the naturalist, to awaken the inquisitive spirit of the historian, to inspire the imagination of the poet, and to court the imitative powers of the painter. And in this scene, we also see Turner exploring the more dangerous elements of nature. Uh, this is sort of underscored by the somewhat choppy seas uh, and the diagonal line of clouds, what seem like they may be sheets of rain coming down. And this is anticipating his more thorough explorations of the sublime. And this is a concept that we'll come back to. So we see in his, his representation of the sea, that's where he's hinting at the more sublime qualities of nature. But in this early study, it's really focusing on the sea as an element of a picturesque scene. This is also a really great early example because Cook reproduced Turner's original image as both as as two types of prints, as an engraving and as an etching, and we can use it to see how diff these different forms of printmaking really affect the nature of the image. Etching uh, is a process in which, and I don't want, want to go too much into detail of printmaking processes, but just a brief over, overview. Etching is a process in which a metal plate is covered with a waxy substance, and the artist uses a needle to draw into that wax. When their image is complete, the plate is soaked in an acid, acid bath, and the lines that have been drawn with a needle are exposed and eaten away into the plate. So then the wax is removed, uh, ink is added to the lines and wiped away from the plate, the a piece of paper is put on top of the plate and then passed through a press and you have this, this etching print. With engraving, on the other hand, the image is pressed into a metal plate using a tool called a burin. You're basically removing metal through uh, the gesture through the through the the handmade gesture rather than through a chemical process uh, the the image is produced again ink is added wiped away from the plate so it's only in the engraved lines and put through a press each of these different forms of printmaking has its advantages engraving is a very difficult process most artists didn't actually do the engravings themselves but with etching it's more akin to drawing you're not you don't have that physical process of of cutting away metal from a plate you're basically just drawing into wax so more artists often did etchings themselves so artists like rembrandt and goya did their own etchings Cook did both of these prints rather than Turner, although Turner did experiment with some print uh, printmaking later on. As we see in the two examples, the etching and the engraving, the latter really allows for greater, greater tonal effects. We have a wider, more subtle range of light and dark, which, as Gilpin argues, is a key element of the picturesque, and it also works to really replicate the texture of these various surfaces that Turner is, is representing. 
Also, the diagonal movement of the clouds and rain in the engraving stands in, in stark contrast to the, the gleaming monastery atop the mount. The etching, on the other hand, has much more has much more emphasis on the verticality, on vertically oriented lines of the sky, and the image has an overall sort of calmer appearance than the engraving. The picturesque views of the coast of southern England was a relatively successful endeavor and one of a number of print projects that uh, Turner was involved in. These print series really helped Turner make a name for himself and earn a decent income. And this was during the period when he was really popular and was starting to be recognized not only as the greatest marine painter, the greatest painter of seascapes in, in London, but also just of landscapes in general and really of painting in general. The Picturesque Views was published actually just or began to be published just prior to the Battle of Waterloo, which effectively ended the British military campaign against the French. Despite the relative lack of major Navy campaigns following that moment, the sea still remained a huge component of British life, British mercantile life, um, especially through things like the whaling industry. Uh, in 1845, Turner exhibited two paintings. So this is uh, 30 years after the last image that I discussed. Um, Turner exhibited two paintings at the Royal Academy exhibition related to whaling. And the next year, 1846, he exhibited two more. He probably painted these in the hopes that they would be purchased by a man named Elhanan uh, Bicknell. Uh, he was a wealthy patron of Turner's who had made his fortune with the firm Langton and Bicknell, uh, and that firm worked primarily with the sperm whaling industry uh, and, and did a lot of candle making. Becknell had bought four copies of Thomas Beale's uh, extremely influential Natural History of the Sperm Whale, and he may have loaned or given a copy to Turner. Turner had probably never actually seen a sperm whale before and may have uh, or likely relied on the illustrations in Beale's book, as well as a painting um, of, of sperm whaling by a man named William Huggins that was owned by Bicknell's firm. The painting, uh, one of these four paintings, the one that's titled Whalers, is alternative, alternatively called The Whale Ship, and it's at the Met, is the most dramatic of these four whaling paintings, and was the one, the only one to be purchased, uh, though Bicknell, who purchased it, eventually gave it back because he was really not happy with the finish of it. He didn't, he especially didn't like the way that Turner incorporated watercolor into this oil painting. When it was exhibited in 1845, Turner actually included a reference to Beale's natural history of the sperm whale. Um, and that um, excerpt that he included uh, had the following passage. Captain Swain, with 12 men in one boat, made another attack upon the whale with the lance, which caused it to throw up blood from the blowhole in increased quantities. The whale went into a flurry and soon died, when to the dismay of the boat's crews, who had endured so much danger and hardship in its capture, it sunk and never rose again. So in Turner's image, we see the whale in the midst of what it's called, what's called its death flurry. Uh, it's really angry. Its tail has slapped the, the, the sea and caused some of the boats to capsize. 
uh, that's situated in the center of the canvas, um, while the main whaling vessel is in the background. And in in whaling, in the pursuit of a whale, in uh, on on a whaling expedition, the the main ship would stay away from the whale. They would put down these smaller boats that would go out and chase it. And one of the indications to me that Turner may not have been extremely familiar with whaling uh, is the lack of what is described in in that passage, what's called uh, fire in the chimney, when the whale is sort of mortally wounded and uh, it starts to actually spout blood through its blowhole. And that's, as I mentioned, um, described in, in this passage. Uh, in Turner's image, it's just kind of coming out of the side. This is a period in Turner's career when his style was increasingly baffling to many viewers. This was when he was not really as acclaimed as he had been and often derided by many people. Uh, Here in this image, you can see him really exploring the indeterminacy between sky and sea. Uh, In places, there's very barely any distinction between the two. Uh, In general, form becomes indistinct as to become almost unrecognizable and the scene is composed of a a real flurry of brush strokes Uh, he's really trying to imitate the medium of watercolor which he used extensively for studies he's translating the the luminous transparency of watercolor into the more sort of publicly esteemed medium of oil painting One of the techniques he used to do this was he primed his canvases with white, which was rather unusual. Most painters prime their canvases with darker mid-tones. So in priming it with white, it becomes more luminous. If you prime it with with darker tones, it's going to have just a a darker quality. So when he's trying to capture this this sense of of light, of luminosity, you want that, that lighter sort of backdrop for it. Another technique he used is called scumbling, in which you build up layers of broken colors to create uh, a sense of texture and, and luminosity. He used a palette knife often rather than a brush to apply paint, and this gives the surface a rough, aggressive texture. Although the whaling industry was, was really crucial, as I mentioned, to British mercantile life, Turner's exploration of of the life, the the circumstances of whaling, especially this fierce battle between man and nature, um, I think is important to situate within the broader context of of a philosophical idea that was was really prominent and we'll see really coming through also in the last painting I want to discuss, and that's called the sublime. When artists first started to capture an experience that we might call sublime, it's when the sublime was first starting to circulate as a philosophical concept, and this would be in the 18th century. And we typically associate the paintings of the sublime with romanticism. So you might um, imagine the paintings of Friedrich, which we talked about during our episode on romanticism last fall. Um, There are two basically competing notions of the sublime that were articulated by Edmund Burke and also by Immanuel Kant. And I don't want to get into the sort of intricacies of these. There's a lot of um, literature on the issue of the sublime. It's It's actually an overwhelming and vast topic, just like the sublime itself. One of the things that 
both Burke and Kant did was to try to differentiate between the merely beautiful and the sublime. So sublime is not simply something that's very beautiful. It's actually a different category of aesthetic experience. And for both of them, there's a sense that the sublime is is more than just pretty. It, it actually it has these other dimensions to it. So for example, it is uh, about a, an experience of immensity. And this immensity can even be so great and vast that it inspires a kind of terror in us, that it that it overwhelms us. And for Kant, who you know wrote the critique of pure reason and was very interested in in thinking about and understanding human rationality and its capabilities, um, his argument is very complex. So I'm, I won't go into it. Um, I can only sort of gloss it. But basically, um, the sublime is something that actually that overwhelms our our ability to reason. So it's something that sort of blows our circuits, if you will. With this painting, I think one of the things that Sarah pointed out reminds me of the sublime, and it's the fact that the horizon line is actually blurred. So you can't really see where the ocean ends and the sky begins. And rationally, you know that there must be a point where that happens. But the fact that sort of reality is being confused in this way, right, and that your sensory data, like the information that you are be able to perceive isn't enough, isn't accurate, can't really help you understand the reality of the situation, um, I think is, is sort of a gesture towards the sublime here. My favorite anecdotal example of the effect of the sublime uh, is a, a, a guy I went to high school with apparently one night was sitting out in his backyard, staring up at the sky and the stars, and this is part of my hometown that was not very illuminated, so you could probably actually see stars, unlike in New York City, and was thinking about the overwhelming vastness of the universe and got so, was so himself overwhelmed by it that he threw up. That's amazing. <laughs> yeah. That's amazing. I mean, it is dizzying yeah. if you actually like lie down and look at the sky and realize how vast it is. I mean... It's sort of sad in a way that we now only have that as a simulacrum, but you know what I'm talking about. Like if you go to a planetarium show and you lie back and they make the simulation of the night sky, I mean, you literally get dizzy. And it's not because it's the planetarium. It's because that sense of space, like visually where the depth cues are off, um, is is very disorienting. And that's Mm -hmm. really, I guess, what I'm trying to say about the sublime is it's something that's disorienting and upsetting as much as it is beautiful and calming. Mm -hmm. And so I guess another aspect of the sublime here in this painting is the agitation, Mm -hmm. that you're not looking out at a placid sea, at a glass surface sea that, you know, just has this beautiful reflection of the sky, but that it's this, you know, animated force that um, sort of makes you feel uncomfortable, I Mm -hmm. guess. The essence of the sublime, I think, really comes through in the final painting I want to discuss. Uh, This is one that um, actually chronologically comes slightly before Whalers. Uh, It's called, it has a long title, uh, it's called Light and Color, Goethe's Theory, The Morning After the Deluge, Moses Writing the Book of Genesis. I wanted to end with this one because it not only shows Turner at his most stylistically radical, but is also an important example of how his explorations of the sea coincided with the concerns that really transcend all the various phases of his career. So I mentioned his first salon painting was 1796. Light and color Goethe's theory is 1843. 
So that's almost 50 years later. He dies in 1851. So he has a really long and productive career. The the things that this painting sort of transcends or the ideas that, that transcend the various parts of his career that are really encapsulated in this painting are the effects of light and color and uh, particularly the human response to those things. Also the relationship between painting and poetry, and that's not something that I have really time to get into today, but I'll talk about it briefly. The, sublimi the sublimity of nature and particularly that sublimity of nature in the context of history and specifically with a religious subject. Now I should note, I'm, I'm a little... I'm a little scared to talk about this painting because it's very complex and very smart people have written a lot of very smart stuff about it. So um, this is going to be a somewhat uh, a, a limited analysis or, or, or overview of this painting, um, but I'll do my best. Light and Color is, as I mentioned, was exhibited in 1843, along with its pendant painting, which was called Shade and Darkness, The Evening of the Deluge. And actually, both of these paintings are up at the De Young Museum show right now, uh, Turner Painting Set Free, which is there through September 20th. Um, and that exhibit surveys Turner's late career. So if you're in San Francisco or, or are uh, traveling there sometime in the next couple of months, you have a great opportunity to see these two paintings side by side. The subject is ostensibly the biblical flood from the book of Genesis, which destroyed all of humanity except for Noah and his family and his retinue of animals. What we see in, in this painting, Light and Color, is the morning after. And in the Bible story, this is the point when God forms a covenant with Noah. He says he will never again destroy the world with a flood. And this covenant is confirmed with the appearance of a rainbow. And God says, whenever the rainbow, whenever the rainbow appears in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and all living creatures of every kind on the earth. So it's significant that Turner is making specific reference to a biblical story that's having to do with color. As the painting's title suggests, this is not only a historical subject, but it's predominantly referencing the subjects of light and color. And specifically, as we know from Turner's biography, he's referring to the writings of, of Johann Wolfgang von Goethe. And that's in the title, Goethe's Theory. So specifically, he's referring to Goethe's theory that different tones evoke different emotional responses. And Goethe divides these up into the plus colors, what we might refer to as warm tones, so reds, yellows, oranges. These tones evoke optimism and warmth and happiness, while the minus colors, which are the cool tones, blues, greens, purples, those types of things, produce feelings of restlessness or anxiety. So this painting, Light and Color, is produced primarily using warm tones, while the pendant, Evening of the Deluge, is primarily cool. So there's an obvious dichotomy also in the subject matter there. It's morning versus evening. It's during the flood versus after the flood. It's, it's cool versus warm. However, the, the sort of optimism that may be implied in his use of warm tones here is, is kind of undermined by the poem that accompanied its original exhibition. And this is from one of Turner's own poem, poems. It's called uh, Fallacies of Hope. And this is, this is just a, a stanza from it. 
It says the Ark that stood firm on Ararat, the returning sun, exiled Earth's humid bubbles, the emulous of light, reflected her lost forms, each in prismatic guise, hope's harbinger, ephemeral as the summer fly, which rises, flits, expands, and dies. So it reflects a much more pessimistic attitude towards the effect of the flood. There's sort of hope's harbinger, which rises, flits, expands, and dies. So hope eventually dies. The, the complexity of this is, is mirrored, actually, in Turner's own response to Goethe. Although he agreed with certain of his arguments, he disagreed with Goethe's notion that color is created through the interaction of light and darkness. Turner, on the other hand, sided with Isaac Newton, who said that color was produced only through light. And some art historians see this pair of paintings as Turner's experiments to prove the Newtonian idea. And although the subject here is the story of the flood, there's interesting sort of valencies in in the actual nature of how it's represented. So we're seeing the flood, we're seeing the the after aftermath of the flood and and uh, the only human again to come out of that was Noah and his family uh but at the center of the painting is Moses and it's Moses writing the book of Genesis so why that presence of Moses well a couple of things this is a time when it was believed that Moses actually wrote the entirety of the Hebrew Bible or the Pentateuch which is the first five books of the uh of the Old Testament um, also below Moses, really in the center of the painting here, is this kind of weird squiggly line that represents the brazen serpent, serpent um, which in during the Jewish exodus, it's, it's described in the Bible, was raised by Moses. And this is often seen as a foregrounding of Christ's resurrection in the New Testament. Also, you see these bodies swirling in the sea. Um, which are, are presumably the, the corpses uh, following, that the, the, the people who drowned in the deluge. But um, some have suggested may also be a reference to the Israelites passing through the Red Sea in the Exodus narrative, of which, of which Moses is, was the leader. Um, so we have this connection between the flood, the biblical flood, then Moses writing about the flood, and Moses as prefiguring the coming of Christ. So there, there's this, this interesting temporal complexity. It's also been suggested that that representation of Moses is sort of a, a sly reference to the author Moses Harris, who published uh, a book called The Natural System of Colors in the late 18th century. So again, a reference to, to color theory. Visually, light and color is defined primarily through the swirling motion that dominates the border. And it's interesting to note that it's actually a square canvas. Um, both both paintings, uh, light and color and uh, shade and darkness, um, are square ca- canvases that were originally in octagonal frames. So emphasizing the, the circularity there. Again, he's using the scumbling technique, so we have patches of blue color sort of visible in the upper right-hand corner, but by and large, the painting is composed of of warmer tones, really of yellow, and there's actually this great caricature of Turner that you often see in in surveys where uh, he's just holding up basically a mop, and there's a bucket that says yellow next to it, and and the suggestion is that he's just taking yellow paint and, and, you know, mopping it all over the surface of a canvas. The, the horizon line that's really indistinct in, in whalers and that, that um, Tina mentioned is, is kind of one of our key indicators of the idea of the sublime is not even present here at all. 
Um, the, and the horizon line is, is one of the main elements that grounds what we call illusionistic painting, um, painting that resembles reality. It gives it a sense of, of spatial recession. And this was an idea that was established all the way back in the Renaissance. Um, it's interesting because Turner was the professor of perspective at the Royal Academy at this point in his career. Um, it's, it's interesting because these later paintings forego those traditional modes of perspective. And this is something that he was really criticized for um, during this period of, of his life. However, in examining the writings of Goethe, Turner began to explore the idea that human vision is subjective, that it's not the same for every person. We don't all see things the same way. And also that perspective, specifically things like linear or one-point perspective, these things that were established in the Renaissance, are constructions rather than given realities. And some historians have gone so far as to suggest that the circular image, the circular construction is, is symbolic of the eye, which of course Turner is really concerned with vision throughout his career. I know that what Sarah just said might sound really counterintuitive, um, that, you know, linear perspective is just a construction. What does that mean when we've learned that linear perspective is precisely the reason that Renaissance painters were able to achieve a sort of naturalistic copy of um, our vision of space? Look, we don't have time to get into all this, but um, I will say that we will put on the blog um, a link to a book um, by a guy named Edgerton that goes into um, the history of linear perspective and also explains why linear perspective is, in fact, a cultural construct. Um, And as Sarah already suggested, one reason is because linear perspective assumes one eyeball, basically that's stationed and fixed in space. um, And... uh, it denies basically the reality of binocular vision, the fact that vision is mobile, and also the curvature of the eye, that the retina is not um, a flat surface, but in fact is curved. That's not really um, captured by linear perspective. So yeah, linear perspective, I know it sounds weird, but actually um, that's not really how reality looks. It's kind of a flattening and an abstraction of depth. Gershon does a fantastic job of explaining this, so we don't have to. Yeah, good point. Um, so just to wrap up, although light and color may not be considered a marine painting in sort of the strictest sense of the word, that's one of the reasons that I picked it, um, was because it it gives a sense of the complexity of how Turner thought about the ocean, how he thought about the sea, and how it was incorporated into his various landscapes, his various, um, uh, the various points in his career, the different things that he was concerned with. Um, and it, it, it helps us understand how water and the sea function, not just as part of the realities of contemporary British life, be it through the Navy, through mercantile exchange, but as part of this really primordial and spiritual and visual nature of human experience. And this is one of the reasons that um, you know, Turner is still considered such a great master um, of the 19th century and is credited with really elevating landscape and seascape to uh, to a higher genre, to the possibilities of a higher genre like history painting, which we've talked about many times over. As always, you can find more information, including links on our website, www.arthistory.today. You can also let us know what you thought about this episode on our Facebook page, 
facebook.com slash art history today or through Twitter. Our Twitter handle is at arthisttoday, A-R-T-H-I-S-T-T-O-D-A-Y. Happy summer, everybody.